the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Coming up, Tucker Carlson's interview with Putin dropping uh, this evening. And I'll make the case for why we should hear Putin out. Um, Rona McDaniel looks like she's going to exit the RNC. I think it's time to clean house at the RNC and perhaps some other places in the Republican Party. And attorney Christina Bob joins me. We're going to talk about the Colorado case before the Supreme Court today about keeping Trump on the ballot. Hey, if you're watching on Rumble or listening on Apple, Google or Spotify, please subscribe to my channel. This is the Dinesh D'Souza Show. this voice. The times are crazy. In a time of confusion, division, and lies, we need a brave voice of reason, understanding, and truth. This is the Dinesh D'Souza Podcast. There are two very interesting things going on today, and, and I don't mean to, in comparing them, I don't mean to imply that they are of equal importance. One has high... Uh, constitutional significance. It has huge implications for the 2024 election. Uh, the other is interesting. It's entertaining. It's got social media in a fluster and in a tizzy, but it is not in the same league. But nevertheless, I want to talk about both. Now, the first one, of course, is the Supreme Court making a decision over whether Colorado has the right to throw Trump off the ballot. And uh, this has wide ramifications. If Colorado can do this, uh, Maine is going to do it too. H- Hawaii has a bill making its way through that could do it also. Uh, red states are going to retaliate against Biden. There is going to be no end to it. Uh, I have Christina Bob, who is a um, attorney for Trump. She's going to come on and we're going to delve into this issue and the constitutional basis that Colorado is invoking to the court and also look at where the court may come out on it. I want to talk in my this opening segment about the other issue that's dropping today, and that is um, that is Tucker Carlson's interview with um, with Putin. Now, uh, this has uh, turned out to cause quite a ruckus. It started out with people on the left blasting Tucker. He's a traitor. He's, um, you know, he's Putin's man. He's an asset of Putin. Why else is he in Moscow? And, and of course, Tucker has been sort of um, playing along in a very cagey way with all this, uh, putting out little videos of Tucker's in a store and he's eating ice cream or Tucker's walking around talking to Russians on the street. And then people go, those aren't ordinary Russians. Those are, those are Putin's men, you know, who are putting, giving Tucker propaganda. And uh, finally, MSNBC, I believe it was, trotted out Hillary Clinton. Uh, oh, yeah, Tucker's, uh, Tucker's a fool. Uh, Tucker's a, a useful idiot of Putin. And um, now, interestingly, there is a segment on the right that agrees with this and that has been echoing the media critique of Tucker. And our friend Sebastian Gorka, for example, um, hates Putin 
and has basically been enraged, in fact, has in some cases gotten into a battle with some of his own supporters and followers by saying that this is, in fact, a, um, a surrender uh, to Putin propaganda, that uh, this is going to be a, a pro-Putin sort of love fest uh, with Tucker, and uh, it is based upon the complete illusion that Putin is our friend, that Putin is the, the good guy, if you will, in the Ukraine conflict, Whatever you think about the amount of money that we're giving to Ukraine, uh, Putin is not, this is Gorka um, um, arguing this, he's not the good guy. He, he did invade Ukraine, and uh, we should not be uh, participating in Putin puffery, so to speak. Now, the way I look at it uh, is that um, uh, under normal circumstances, I would say, look, uh, Putin's a thug. He's a bad guy. Uh, and we should apply extreme skepticism uh, in interviewing him and in listening to the interview. In other words, the interview should be, and I hope it is, kind of a tough interview uh, in which you um, press Putin up against the wall and have him answer and account for his actions, not just his actions in Ukraine, but, you know, his suppression of dissent, his jailing of opponents, um, Khodorovsky, uh, uh, jailing, uh, was it Navalny? Uh, and all of this needs to be put out there. Now, when you put it out there, it's, it's going to come back at you. And Putin is a smart guy. I mean, Putin's no Biden, right? Um, Biden can't do a one-hour interview uh, when, if you press him with skeptical questions, but Putin can. And Putin's going to hit back. Putin's going to say, in fact, he was interviewed about a year ago, I guess it was, and he did hit back. Somebody goes, why do you jail Navalny? Putin goes, well, why do you jail the January 6th protesters? He goes, you had 450. At that time, it was 450 ordinary citizens who walked into your capital, raised a bunch of questions. You're jailing them one by one. Aren't you jailing dissenters? And you're accusing me of jailing one guy? So Putin has that... Uh, intellectual uh, uh, suppleness, uh, rhetorical skill. I think this is actually why the media is a little freaked out because they know that Putin is not a dummy. Putin's no Biden, like I say. Putin will make his case. Uh, and the question is, does he have a right to make his case? Is it journalism to let him make his case? And my answer to that is an unequivocal yes. I feel especially strongly about this because we have been getting no real journalism on the issue of Ukraine. I mean, we have been getting, uh, you know, I don't even know what to call it. I don't know if you've seen the clip of the uh, the uh, journalist from CNN uh, interviewing uh, Zelensky. This is Zelensky from Ukraine. And this is the most sickening, groveling type of interview I don't even know what to call it. I'm going to call it, and Debbie's going to freak out here a little bit. It's like fellatio journalism. Because, honestly, <laughs> honey, what I'm talking about, it is utterly the most debased, groveling type that's of... Funny, of that's okay. A lot of people probably don't know what that word is. Oh, Debbie goes, let's <laughs> hope that nobody knows what that means. <laughs> Look it up. <laughs> no. That's why we have Google these days, fellas. In any event, the point is... We don't have any idea of what the real debate is over Ukraine. Why? Because you don't want to interview Putin? All right. Well, let's have a skeptical interview with Zelensky. But has, can you think of one? I can't. It's, I don't believe it's even happened. Um, and, uh, so we are at a time when, in a sense, the, the media has become an extension of regime propaganda. 
the media is echoing essentially the Biden administration. Now, people go, well, Dinesh, Putin's a liar. Okay, Putin's a liar. Biden's a liar too. Biden lies every single day. In fact, he lie, he lies with such uh, tiresome regularity that we can kind of predict his lies as his mouth begins to move. So at least we'll get some new lies from Putin, which will be more interesting. They're not lies we've already heard. So, um, so the idea that we don't want the American people to be subject to propaganda and lies doesn't really work because we are subjected to that every single day. Moreover, what happened to adversary journalism? Let's remember, going back to Vietnam, the defining characteristic of the American media is supposed to be holding power accountable. And holding power accountable here doesn't mean exclusively holding power accountable in other countries. Because in fact, American journalists have limited leverage over other countries. They have more leverage over what happens in this country. And so let's just go back to the Vietnam War. It wasn't the job of American journalists to, quote, hold Ho Chi Minh accountable or hold the Viet Cong accountable. No, it was to hold the Johnson administration accountable, hold General Westmoreland accountable. That's the meaning of adversary journalism. Well, it looks like adversary journalism is dead. Or to put it differently, the only adversary journalism that we have in America today is let's be adversarial to the adversaries of the Democratic Party. Let's be adversarial to the adversaries of the Democratic president who is in office right now. His enemies become our enemies. We'll be adversarial to them. And so we'll be adversarial to Putin. Will also be adversarial to J.D. Vance and Josh Hawley because they are adversaries politically to Joe Biden. But we will do suck-up journalism for Biden. We will do suck-up journalism for Democrats. We'll do suck-up journalism for Schumer. And anybody who's a friend of the regime, let's say Zelensky, he gets the suck-up journalism uh, treatment as well. So Tucker is... What's he doing? He's basically breaking the mold. Uh, and, and I think this is a good thing because, again, let's go back. Um, were there interviews with, uh, with Khomeini, uh, during the hostage, uh, situation and when, when he first came to power in Iran? Yes. Were there interviews with bin Laden? Yes. I remember bin Laden being interviewed by uh, Peter Arnett of CNN, by John Miller of Time Magazine, by other journalists. So there's, Plenty of precedent for hostile uh, forces being interviewed by American journalists. Putin himself has been interviewed multiple times. So the objection here is that Putin is being interviewed in a way that's going to allow Putin to make his case. And I say, bring it on. Let's keep an open mind. Let's listen to the case. I think we've been sold a lot of propaganda on Ukraine. It's not to say that Ukraine isn't a victim of invasion or injustice. But we're not getting the full story, and it would be kind of interesting to hear, I'm eager to hear, what Putin has to say about it. Are you ready to lose weight but not sure where to start? I understand. Debbie and I were right where you are a year ago. Now, let me tell you why we chose PhD Weight Loss and Nutrition and why I highly recommend their program. First, Dr. Ashley Lucas has her PhD in Chronic Disease and Sports Nutrition. Her program is based on years of research and is science-based. 
Second, the PhD program starts with nutrition, but it's so much more. They know that 90% of permanent change comes from the mind, and they work on eliminating the reason you gain this weight in the first place. There are no shortcuts, no pills, no injections, just solid science-based nutrition and behavior change. And finally, probably most important, I lost 27 pounds, Debbie lost 24. We haven't gained the weight back. Why? That's because PhD weight loss and nutrition has a lifelong maintenance program. So if you're ready to lose weight and keep it off, Lose weight for the last time. Call 864-644-1900 to get started. Or you can go online at myphdweightloss.com. Do what I did, what hundreds of my listeners have done. Call today, 864-644-1900. There's a lot of instability here in the United States and around the world, abroad. Elections in Taiwan, North Korea on the brink, Iran increasing its aggression, So how have you sheltered your savings and investments from potential major setbacks to the economy? It's it's not too late to diversify an old IRA or 401k into gold, and Birch Gold Group can help you to do that. As opposed to many other investments, gold thrives in times of uncertainty. It's an important part of diversifying your savings. It's part of my savings strategy. Here's how Birch Gold can help make it a part of yours. Birch Gold will help you to convert an existing IRA or 401k into a tax-sheltered IRA in gold, and it doesn't cost you a penny out of pocket. Just text Dinesh to 989898 to get started. Now, with an A-plus rating with the Better Business Bureau, countless five-star reviews, thousands of happy customers Birch Gold can provide the knowledge of diversification through precious metals. Text Dinesh to 989898. Claim your free information kit and protect your savings with gold today. The Republican Party quite clearly is suffering a real crisis of leadership. Or to put it somewhat differently, the real crisis is a lack of leadership. And we're seeing this on many fronts. Uh, Kevin McCarthy, I think, was on the balance a poor leader of Republicans in the House. Happily, he's out of there. And uh, and very much in the manner of a poor leader, what does he do? He then mobilizes the resources that are at his disposal, the money he's raised over the years, to go after the people who got rid of him. He now wants to primary them, uh, uh, teach them a lesson. It's kind of vendetta politics. And that's really all that seems to motivate this guy, which tells you right there that you're dealing with a very petty guy. Um, now, it's things don't look a whole lot better in the Senate. Mitch McConnell. Um, I used to have a more positive view of McConnell. Uh, and a little part of me wants to think that that old McConnell is still around, but I'm not sure that he is. Um, McConnell these days has been acting in a extremely counterproductive way. Case in point, McConnell actively pushes this bill, a bill that seems designed to funnel all this money to Ukraine and sell out the country on the border as a worthwhile price in McConnell's view to pay for it. And um, and leaving aside the merits or the lack of merit, the demerits of this very bad idea, isn't it interesting that you've got the minority leader in the Senate uh, and you got you got what uh, 49 um, is it 49 or is it 50 49 I guess Republican senators and and McConnell can only get the votes of four of them so when the border bill goes up he's got four guys including poor you know hapless James Lankford who by the way is still 
idiotically defending the bill as if to say that he knows something that nobody else knows, as if the rest of us can't read the bill. Uh, no, it doesn't mean that. No, it doesn't mean that. <laughs> well, what are you doing here? I mean, you're telling us what it means. I mean, are you more literate than we are? Are you got a deeper capacity? What did you do with this bill? Did you, you know, you have to hold it up to the light and like squeeze lemon juice on it, read it upside down? Are there things in there that we can't see? So the point here is that McConnell, I think, uh, and, and, and I'm seeing an, an emboldened Mike Lee, an emboldened Ted Cruz, and they're basically now saying something that they haven't said before, which is it's time for McConnell to start thinking about exit. Uh, McConnell is not really an effective leader. In fact, he's hurting the Republican Party, and, uh, uh, and it would be good to have somebody else take the reins. Uh, and uh, in general, I agree. Now, Rona McDaniel. Um, it's been announced in multiple places that Rona McDaniel is quitting. Uh, there's been some discussion of the two candidates who might be vying to replace her. Apparently, one of them is her choice, which I think is going to be like the kiss of death. That guy is like, please don't endorse me, Rona, you know, uh, zip it up and so on. Support me secretly. But the point is, um, from what I've seen from Rona McDaniel, I'm not 100% sure that she is quitting. Uh, I think that she probably is, but her statements are ambiguous. Like, we're going to see what happens after South Carolina. And, you know, I don't want to discuss that. I'm fully engaged in the battle in South Carolina and also fighting all these voter fraud lawsuits that she claims the RNC is fighting. Uh, by the way, part of what seems to have sealed Rona's fate is some excellent articles by Red State Jen Van Lahr. Uh exposing the fact that these people waste money on floral arrangements and limousines. And what Jen Van Lahr did, which was very useful, was she compared the spending of the RNC and the DNC on the same items, the same line items. Okay, you think it's normal to spend, you know, $70,000 on flowers? Let's see what the DNC did. Ooh, oops, much less. You think it's normal to spend $400,000 on limousines? I'm just, these are my numbers, not the actual numbers. Let's look at what the DNC did. Oh, much less. So this, this kind of side-by-side -side comparison, I think, sealed the deal. It showed a lot of people that the RNC is not only ineffective, it's grossly wasteful. It's Marie Antoinette, let them eat cake. And so this is why people are holding back their contributions. Uh, and this is this is ultimately why the RNC is in trouble. It has horrible leadership. Now, I know there are people out there going, it should be Scott Pressler. It should be uh, Harmie Dillon. I don't know who it should be, but it should be somebody who not only has not only committed to reversing course for the RNC, but someone committed to the fight that we are in now that can effectively take the fight to the Democrats uh, so I hope that Rona McDaniel is, in fact, going to quit, and I hope we get someone a lot, a lot better. Debbie Knight started taking Relief Factor three years ago, and we've seen a huge difference in our joints. Nothing short of amazing. Aches and pains are totally gone thanks to this 100% drug-free solution called Relief Factor. It's a natural way to fight pain. Relief Factor is a daily supplement. It helps your body fight back against pain. It's 100% drug-free. Relief Factor was developed by doctors searching for a better alternative for pain. Relief Factor uses a unique formula of natural ingredients like turmeric, omega-3s to 
help reduce or eliminate the everyday aches and pains that you're experiencing. So whether it's neck, back, joint, or muscle pain, Relief Factor can help you feel better. Unlike pills that simply mask your pain for a short time, Relief Factor helps support your body's natural response to inflammation so you feel better all day, every day. See how Relief Factor can help you with this, the three-week quick start kit. It's only $19.95, and it comes with Relief Factor's Feel Better or Your Money Back Guarantee. So what do you have to lose? Visit relieffactor.com or call 800-4-RELIEF. The number again, 800-4-RELIEF, or go to relieffactor.com. When you feel the difference, you know it works. Mike Lindell and the employees of MyPillow want to thank my listeners for all your continued support to thank you. They're having an overstock clearance sale right now for the best prices ever when you use promo code Dinesh and you get free shipping on your entire order. Get 50% off the MyPillow 2.0. That's the pillows. Also on the new flannel sheets that just came in. They won't last long. Get the six-pack towel sets for just $29.98 and take advantage of free, of free shipping on the larger items like mattresses and mattress toppers. There are hundreds percent made in the usa on sale for as low as 99.99 everything is on sale the brand new kitchen towels the bath towels the dog beds the robes the blankets the couch pillows and so much more so check it out to get the best specials go to mypillow.com use promo code dinesh or you can call 800-876-0227 again it's 800-876-0227 get free shipping on your entire order while supplies last Guys, I'm delighted to welcome to the podcast my friend Christina Bob. She is, um, well, she started out um, in the Marine Corps with a legal career. She then became an investigative reporter. She worked for One America News Network. Uh, She then worked in um, various law firms, and she is now an attorney for President Donald J. Trump. We're here to talk about, well, Trump's legal issues, but particularly the Colorado case, which is before the Supreme Court pretty much as we speak. Um, Christina, welcome. Thanks for joining me. Um, by the way, I want to mention your new book, which I've been looking forward to for about, well, for a couple of years now, and it's out, <laughs> and it's incredible. It's called Stealing Your Vote, the inside story of the 2020 election and what it means for 2024. I might be able to uh, come back to that because I think that yeah. a lot of these cases, as you know better than anyone else, are a form of election interference, right? A, a oh, clearly yeah. an obvious effort here to get Trump off the ballot. Uh, and this is before the Supreme Court. Now, we're talking at the exact time that the court <laughs> is is hearing this back and forth. Yeah. And I want to begin by asking you about something that Clarence Thomas um, just posed um, in, the, um, in the questioning. And he goes, is there any precedent for this. In other words, even if you go back to the Civil War, is there a single case where a state decided on its own that we will define insurrection, we will then conclude that this particular guy was guilty of insurrection, and on that basis we will keep him off the ballot? Has this ever occurred? Has this clause of the Constitution ever been applied ever in the way that you want it to be applied now. And apparently the attorney for Colorado was like, uh, 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 <laughs> no answer because there is no answer, is there? Yeah, no, there is no answer. Uh, I thought Jonathan Mitchell did a good job of laying out President Trump's position. Uh, the main issue really being 
does uh, Section 3 of Article 14, uh, I'm sorry, the 14th Amendment um, apply to the President of the United States? It's very specific in the language about which officers it applies to, and it does not list the President or the Vice President for a number of reasons. And actually, Justice Brown Jackson laid out pretty well why uh, the president and the vice president aren't part of that language. I was surprised to hear it come from her, but but she did lay it out pretty well. Um, but yeah, uh, well, the, well, what, the, Christina, what is that reason? Why 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 is it uh, sensible to frame yeah. that clause, which does prohibit people who engage in insurrection uh, from uh, from running for uh, the presidency? Why why would it exempt the president and the vice president? Well, there are a couple of reasons. The um, the one that Justice uh, Brown Jackson laid out that I, I thought was really the historic reason is when they drafted it, the framers of that article of that amendment uh, were were concerned about insurrectionists from the Civil War worming their way back up into federal office through the state. And so what they were limiting were they were limiting limiting senators and they were limiting members of Congress, people who are elected by one state. What they didn't want was they didn't want the South to have all of their members of Congress as insurrectionists and then worm their way into the federal government and basically overthrow the federal government that way. They were not concerned about the president or the vice president because that is elected by the entire nation and everyone has a say in it. And there's no not really a threat to one person taking over the entire country with one office, even in the president or vice presidency. And so that isn't really a threat as an insurrectionist. Their rationale really was they wanted to prevent the southern states from from kind of tricking the nation into overthrowing the government. That was the purpose of that amendment. And that's why they were specifically excluded. Uh, and Justice Brown actually laid that out very well. Um, I don't know that she agrees with it, but she she spelled out the argument quite well. What do you think, Christina, about the part at the end of Section 3 where it appears to give Congress and and only Congress, because it doesn't speak about the states at all, the power to, you may say, legislate around yeah. this clause. So Congress, for example, can decide that even if someone engaged in an insurrection uh, as a factual matter, the Congress can grant an amnesty. Uh, and so Congress, for example, did pass laws apparently in the late um, 19th century, basically saying that uh, that there were people who were on the Confederate side in the Civil War, but now they were allowed to participate in politics the same as everybody else. So the enforcement of this provision appears to be in the hands of Congress and not to the discretion of individual states. Is that a potential way for the Supreme Court to rule, namely to say, hey, listen, look, there is a clause right here, but the factual matter of whether A, there was an insurrection, B, did Trump do it, uh, that's up to Congress to determine and not the Secretary of State of Colorado or even the Supreme Court of Colorado. Yeah, that's exactly right. It, it, the argument is that uh, Section 3 is not self-executing. Uh, so if you go in order of the way that the argument has been brought, the first one, first of all, it doesn't even apply to the President of the United States. Second of all, it's not self-executing. You need Congress to pass legislation to say how that clause is supposed to be effectuated. Um, can this go through the court? Can a judge determine that... Uh, you know, this person shouldn't be on the ballot. Can a secretary of state de- determine that this person shouldn't be on a ballot? The The amendment is very clear that Congress has to legislate how it is executed. It's not something that anybody with any authority in any state can just argue. 
Um, and so, yes, that, that is basically the second argument down, down on the line. And, um, there are binding precedents, both in the Supreme Court and through, uh, through lower courts that, no, the states can't to do that. The states can't just on their own, um, come up with this rule. And that's the way that it has operated since the early 1800s. So, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I have, I have said multiple times on national television that I thought that this would be a 9-0, a unanimous ruling because the law is so clear on this. Um, listening to the argument and, you know, you, you know, it's very deceiving when you listen to oral arguments, at the Supreme Court, because the whole point is to hash out the issues, right? So just because there are hard questions asked, um, doesn't necessarily mean that a justice is leading one way or another. But, um, there, I mean, it was the, it was a good discussion. There were good questions asked and, um, the leftist, left leaning judges, uh, we're, we're raising some good points. Like I said, uh, Justice Brown Jackson, I thought she raised a good point for our argument. Um, but you know, we'll, we'll see how it goes. I'm not, I don't know that it'll be nine zero, but I, I do think this will be a decisive victory for Donald Trump. I mean, also, Christina, just to complete the discussion of the arguments, it seems to me another argument, which is, I don't know if it's a constitutional argument, but it's certainly a kind of, we, we live in an age of metaphor. So people, for example, use the word insurrection very loosely these days, right? right. Uh, Biden's border policy is an insurrection. Uh, the suppression of the Hunter Biden laptop was an insurrection. Normally, when you think of a word like insurrection, and obviously this was legislated in a very specific context, right? The firing on Fort Sumter, you know, Gettysburg, 600,000 people dead. That was the insurrection that they were talking about. They were not talking about 200 guys moseying into the Capitol for 30 minutes or two hours, demanding that their congressmen listen to them. So whether or not Trump, you know, incited that, we're talking about an entirely different meaning of the word. And so here's my question. When you have a word in the Constitution, like insurrection, I'm assuming that the there's not infinite interpretive subjectivity, right, to it. Right. Uh, just like even 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 subjective terms in the Constitution, they cruel and unusual punishment. Right. I mean, can can a state decide that if somebody is incarcerated for one day? that that constitutes cruel and unusual punishment. Presumably, the meaning of cruel and unusual punishment doesn't extend to that degree. You can't just stretch it that much. So is that an issue here? Is the Supreme Court able to say, listen, it's kind of crazy to let to decentralize the meaning of the word insurrection, let everybody who decides that there was an insurrection, according to their definition of the term, gets yeah. to throw the leader of the rival party off the ballot. I mean, there's no end to this, is there? No, and you raise a really good point. We actually have a mechanism in our courts to handle the very issue that you're raising about, is he guilty of insurrection or not? It's called our criminal justice system. Here in the United States, we presume innocence until proven guilty. And so w- what they're trying to do is presume guilt and force him to defend his innocence. And uh, President Trump's attorney, Jonathan Mitchell, actually raised this. He said what they're, what they're demanding to do is uh, extra constitutional. It's outside the bounds of the Constitution. The Constitution did not put these limitations um, on anyone who wanted to run for office. They put a limitation on whoever's guilty of insurrection from holding office. Well, Donald Trump hasn't been found guilty of insurrection. Not only has he not been found guilty, he hasn't been charged with insurrection. So it's not even plausible that he could be guilty of this 
in our normal criminal justice system. That's the way the American justice system works is you're innocent until proven guilty. They haven't even charged him with this, but they're trying to presume guilt on something that they haven't even charged him with. So that issue was raised. Uh, they're hashing it out now. Um, and I, I think I think that's a pretty clear one. Like he's not even charged. How can you presume he's guilty? Um, and surely if there was enough evidence to convict him, Jack Smith would have charged him. Um, so, yeah, I mean, that's how we're supposed to solve it. But it's not the way they're doing it. I mean, isn't it just uh, reasonable that let's just say that the court says, yes, Colorado, you can. It's up to you to factually determine what's an insurrection. And it's up to you to decide if you can take him off the ballot, even though you're a blue state and he's running on the red platform. Right. I mean, it seems to me that there will be at least one, if not multiple red states yeah. who then say, all right, well, listen, we think Biden's guilty of an insurrection, insurrection, according to our definition. We mm-hmm. make a factual determination to that effect. And then Biden's off the ballot. And then, I mean, doesn't our whole electoral system disintegrate when yeah. either side gets to throw the rival party guy off the ballot? I mean, it the does. Supreme Court must be aware of this, right? Surely they're aware of this. And yes, it does. I mean, we have 27 states with Republican governors right now and 23 states uh, with Democrat governors. Now, I haven't done the math on the Electoral College. And um, you certainly, you know, the secretaries of state may be slightly different than the governors for the parties. But we basically split. I mean, at that point, because look at what Joe Biden's doing with the border. I mean, in Texas, I mean, he's in a standoff with the state of Texas at the moment. Uh, you're, you're gonna have states say that Joe Biden's ineligible and, you know, it, it's going to make our electorate system fall apart, which is why I think it's so clear that this will be a Trump victory. They, they can't do this and expect our government to continue to function the way that it has. This is so unheard of. It's so out of the box, so out of the ordinary that it would completely disintegrate elections as we know it. Christina, how do you think this is going to come out? I'm assuming that you're fairly confident that the sort of yeah. the six Republican nominees will be solid on this, that even Roberts, even the fact that he's been a bit of a waffler on certain yeah. other issues will not waffle on this one. Now, it would obviously be good to get at least one ideally all three of the liberal justices, because that would just put the issue to bed, shut yeah. the left up on this matter. Uh, based upon, there's a little bit of tea leaf reading in here. Uh, my tea leaf reading is that Elena Kagan is a little more sensible than, say, Sotomayor. Uh, how do you, if you were to just sort of read the justices, the three liberal justices in particular, how do you think they're yeah. going to come out? Um like I said, I thought that this would be a unanimous ruling. I still think that's possible. Um, yeah, I always get nervous judging based off of hearing the arguments. But it was interesting in the oral arguments, they were focused more on states' rights, which I, at least when they were dealing with Jonathan Mitchell, President Trump's attorney, do the states have the right, if he were guilty of insurrection, do the states have the right to take this step? And so, uh, I don't know if there, you know, sometimes the Supreme Court comes out with an opinion that's totally different than we expected the rationale to be, but the decision is the same. You know, he's on the ballot, but for a totally different reason than we all expected. Sometimes that happens. Um, so I do think it's going to come out at least 6-3, probably 7-2. I think Kagan may join us. Uh, then, like I said, even um, Justice Brown Jackson, she very well articulated the historic precedent for the purpose of Section 3 of um, the 14th Amendment. So I... Um, 
I, I don't know. I'll, if, you know, just playing wild cards. I'll say seven, two. Not sure which of the three um, at this point. I'll, I'll back off my unanimous decision just a little bit. But it, it, I don't even think it'll be six, three. I think it'll be at least seven, two. Christina, let's talk about your book, Stealing Your Vote, the inside story of the 2020 election, what it means for 2024. Uh, we've talked enough that I know we're on board with the various ways in which the 2020 election was stolen. Yeah. Some of it was a brazen uh, voter fraud. Some of it was unleveling the playing field. It was a kind of a combination of tactics. Yeah. Now, it looks like in 2022, the left went in, in a slightly different direction, particularly in Maricopa County. It's like, whoops, our machines aren't working yeah. on Election Day when the Republicans, as it turns out, are coming out to vote. Yeah. Um, what is your diagnosis for 2024? I mean, they might be getting pretty nervous at the polls that show that Trump is not just sort of running even, but he seems to be like pulling away Way from ahead, Biden, yeah. despite the fact that he's facing 90 plus criminal charges. So this is a little bit of freak out time. I mean, it's not, it's yeah. only some months away from the election. What is your uh, forecast about what they're likely to try to pull off this year? And yeah. is there a way to stop them? Well, I, I think they are very scared. I think they know they don't have the rigged election locked in the way that they did in 2020. And I think they're very scared about it. And the reason I think that is because look at all the crazy things they're trying to pull in the courts. They're trying to take them off the ballot. They're trying to indict him for things that look a lot like insurrection, but are not quite insurrection. They're indicting him for things that, you know, for destroying, that, that are designed for corporate, you know, entities destroying documents and not actually anything to do with the government. Um, they're indicting him on the document scandal that he actually had a right to those documents when Joe Biden didn't, and then they're letting Joe Biden go. I mean, they're still outlandishly uh, outing themselves as these crazy Marxists. And I don't think they actually want to do that. I think they're doing it because because they're scared about the election and they know that they don't have the lock on with COVID. They don't have the lock on, um, you know, the surprise, the element of surprise that nobody's paying attention. People are paying attention. But if Americans really want to secure their election, regardless of what happens with any of the trials, uh, make sure you get involved. The key to this is everybody being involved at your precinct and county level, because it's not going to get cleared up at the state level. We can see that. It's certainly not going to get cleared up at the federal level. So it gets cleared up county by county, precinct by precinct. And if you're sitting there going, you know, I don't like what's happening in my state, then get involved in your county because we need everybody involved, everybody involved in your county to clean this up. And what you're saying, Christina, which I agree with completely, is that when the ordinary citizen goes, well, what can I do? You know, I'm not an organizer of the rules and so on. I don't decide whether there'll be mail-in drop boxes or not. Well, what you can do is if you, if at all possible, become a poll judge, become a volunteer. Mm -hmm. If you can get your eyes on the process, you're going to have that. You can say, I've done my part to minimize voter fraud and keep yep. the process safe. Guys, check out Christina's book, Stealing Your vote the inside story of the 2020 election and what it means for 2024 christina bob thank you very much for joining me thank you so much how are you feeling these days i feel great one of the reasons i believe i feel better is because i take this 
Balance of nature, fruits and veggies in a capsule, so easy to take. They have an amazing story of how this product was developed by Dr. Douglas Howard. It's right there on their website. Balance of Nature gets over a thousand success stories every single month. They have hundreds of thousands of customers who have purchased billions of capsules of their fruits and veggies over the past 20 years. Their products are gluten-free. They're non-GMO. They contain no added sugars or synthetics. I think if you're looking for something to make you feel better naturally, you should definitely give Balance of Nature a try. In fact, order today. Whether you order online or call them direct, you got to use promo code AMERICA to get the special offer 35% off. Here's the number to call, 800-246-8751. Once again, it's 800-246-8751. Use discount code AMERICA or you can go online, balanceofnature.com. When you use the discount code AMERICA, you get 35% off. I'm continuing my defense of Stephen Douglas as part of a discussion of the Lincoln-Douglas debates. Now, let's be aware that what we're doing is we're going in-depth in making Douglas's arguments for him and kind of with him. Uh, and these are arguments that ultimately will be challenged by Lincoln, but we're getting Douglas's, we're putting as eloquently as we can Douglas's side of the debate. And uh, in doing this, it's helpful to understand, by and large, the full spectrum of the parties that are debating on the slavery issue. So let me outline the really the, the four positions that were out there and that all had significant support. On the far end, you have the abolitionists. Slavery is an abomination. We don't care if slavery has been approved by the Constitution to heck with the Constitution. Burn the Constitution. Uh, slavery is wrong because of a higher law. law. Uh, it is wrong by nature. It is wrong according to God. This is the position of John Brown. It's the position of, um, of um, the abolitionists and uh, Frederick Douglass as well. And although Frederick Douglass later changes his mind about the Constitution, but nevertheless, this is the abolitionist position. It's important to realize that this position was held by a tiny minority of people, even in the North. Now we come to the position of the Republican Party, the mainstream Republican position, Abraham Lincoln's position. Slavery has been allowed by the founders to exist in the South. We're going to leave it there. Slavery, however, should not be allowed to push into the territories. New territories are being added to the Union, and, and we're not going to allow slavery. Congress is going to forbid slavery from going there, and the states have no say in the matter. Why? Because these territories are entering as federal territories. They're joining the Union, and the Union, the country as a whole, has a right to decide what's going to happen to those to those um new territories, which over time can become states. So that's the Republican slash Lincoln position. Then you have the Douglas position. The Douglas position is actually pretty close to the center because it's an attempt to harmonize the positions of the North and the South. And Douglas's position is basically this. Slavery can exist in the South where it already is there and where Lincoln doesn't disagree it should remain. The free states should continue in the North, including Douglas's own state. Douglas is in favor of Illinois remaining a free state. But Douglas goes with the new territories as they decide whether they become states or not. They decide for themselves if they want to have slavery, yes or no. It's a matter of choice, not personal choice, not individual choice, but the choice of each territory and each state. So it's kind of the democratic solution, if you will. That's how Douglas saw it. And then 
further on the other side of the spectrum is the sort of, let's call it the hardcore Southern position. The hardcore Southern Democrats led by John C. Calhoun, the senator from North Car- South Carolina. And Calhoun's position is this. Not only do the southern states have every right to have slavery, but they have every right if their slaves escape to northern states to get them back. That's the fugitive slave law. Moreover, no territory can be closed off to slavery. A slave master should be free to take their slaves to California, free to take them into western territories, and they are property over there, no less than they are property in South Carolina. And so Calhoun is making the full-throated, virtually positive good defense of slavery. Slavery is good for the master and, in a way, good for the slave. Now, this seems a little crazy. Calhoun's view was that slavery is a school of civilization. uh, Slavery is a way to take people who are barbaric, who do not have any of the uh, ingredients of civilization, let alone the habits of democratic participation, uh, and Calhoun's point is that these are inferior people. And so they're going to have to do the inferior jobs. Uh, Calhoun says we have to be humanitarian about it. Um, masters should be kind to slaves. He goes, I am. I'm a master. I'm kind to my slaves. Now, it's important to realize that even though Calhoun is a Democrat and Stephen Douglas is a Democrat, they are not on the same page at all. Stephen Douglas attacks Calhoun, and he basically says that Calhoun, by the extremism of his pro-slavery position, is actually harming the Democratic Party and harming the country. What Stephen Douglas says is that, Calhoun, listen, you are trying to force the Northerners who don't like slavery to give back your slaves. No, we have to have a system in this country where we can agree to disagree. And that means that the Northerners are just as free not to have slaves as the Southerners are to have slaves. And moreover, as we go out into the Western territories, we'll let those people decide if they want to, quote, go north or go south. They can choose if they want to be Northerners for this purpose or Southerners for this purpose. It is up to them. In other words, shouldn't the decision of any democratic principle be decided locally by the very people who are going to live under it. Or, says Douglas, are we really going to let people in one state who are going to have to live with the consequence of a decision, let that decision be made by somebody else for them? Oh, guys, you know what? Slavery is a really bad idea. We decide it's not good for you to have slavery. And Douglas is like, what? You don't have, you don't get to tell the people of Colorado or tell the people of California what's good for them. They decide what's good for them. That's the whole meaning of constitutional democracy. So you can see here that Douglas's position, even though today Lincoln won the Lincoln Douglas debates, Lincoln was elected the president two years later, you know, so historians today, because of hindsight, they go, since things came out in favor of Lincoln, Douglas must be a fool. Douglas's arguments must be shallow. Not necessarily, and they weren't seen that way at the time. There were a lot of people to whom what Douglas was saying, in fact, what I'm saying now on behalf of Douglas, was the not only the absolute common sense of the matter, but was the moderate position to hold the country together, to hold the country together. Now, does this mean that Douglas's only interest was in, quote, holding the country together and not ultimately in ending slavery? No. And this is really where Jaffa, and this is to Jaffa's extreme credit, which is to say Jaffa shows 
that Douglas too had kind of an anti-slavery vision, no less than Lincoln. It differed from Lincoln's. It was not the same way of getting there, but Douglas too had a way of getting there. And what is Douglas's way? Well, Douglas's way very simply is this, expansion, expansion. Why? Because look, you've got the plantation South, which had slavery. That was already the case. But as the country was opening up to the West, you are going to have new states. Um, new states, Texas, of course, had joined the Union. Uh, but then further uh, West, uh, California, obviously Oregon, ultimately, of course, Washington State and so on. And, and Douglas knew, as everybody knew, that those states were, first of all, they were not hospitable to slavery at all. Why? Really two reasons. One is climate and soil. Uh, they weren't plantation states. In fact, they were agricultural, but they were grain agriculture, not cotton. And this means that being that the whole agricultural economy for grain was organized a completely different way than the agricultural economy for cotton. Second, who was populating those states? Who was moving there? Who was actually setting up shop in those states? Answer, immigrants. In other words, the people who are pushing out west tended not to be the established northeasterners, and it tended not to be the established southerners. Those guys sort of had it too good. They were they already had cities, they already had streets, they already had homes. So it's not easy to convince some guy who's living in Hartford, Connecticut, listen, you know what? Sell your house, go out west, you know, where you'll need a gun. No, the people who are willing to do that, some Irish guy who came off the boat, who came out of the potato famine, who was running away from a country where he's starving to death, and he's like, I'll go. So the immigrants, the German immigrants, the Scandinavian immigrants, the Irish immigrants, these were the people who were making their way out west. And guess what? These were free labor guys. These are guys who wanted to work for a wage. Uh, the, this is not a slave population. This is a free immigrant population. And remember, at that time, there was really no such issue as illegal immigrants. The country was opening itself up. It needed a lot of new people. And so people were free to come. It was very easy to get to the United States. It was very easy to go out west. There were incentives for you to go out west. There was land to be had and so on. So here's the point from Douglas's point of view. Douglas realized, guess what? This delicate balance of the free states and the slave states, 13 apiece, is going to be changed. It's as the new states enter the Union, and California, by the way, had already entered the Union around 1850, Douglas realized the balance is going to tip decisively in favor of the free states. And so here's Douglas's argument. Do you really want to fight a civil war over slavery now? When? If you just hang tight, go along with slavery. It's okay. If people want it, let them have it. But guess what? The long-term trend is bound to be away from slavery. As free states join the union, and as new states join the union, they're going to want to be free states because they're agricultural states. They're not plantation states. They're populated with immigrants. We're going to have the free states now dominating the unfree states, and slavery will become obsolete without a war. So Douglas's point, and in some ways his accusation against Lincoln is, you are going to draw the bloody sword 
and bring the country to blows in which Americans are going to be killing each other and slaughtering each other and you're going to destroy the South uh, in, in, a, in a terrible war. Now, Douglas didn't say any of this. What I'm doing is uh, I'm projecting out Douglas's argument. You insane Lincoln are, t- are taking the country to the precipice and for a solution that is in the works already. Subscribe to the Dinesh D'Souza podcast on Apple, Google, and Spotify, or watch on Rumble, YouTube, and SalemNow.com. Three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.